Chapter Twenty Three of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twenty Three: How England Held the Lists at Bordeaux. So used were the good burghers of Bordeaux to martial display and knightly sport, that an ordinary joust or tournament was an everyday matter with them. The fame and brilliancy of the prince's court had drawn the knights-errant and pursuivants of arms from every part of Europe. In the long lists by the Garonne, on the landward side of the northern gate, there had been many a strange combat, when the Teutonic knight, fresh from the conquest of the Prussian heathen, ran a course against the knight of Calatrava, hardened by continual struggle against the Moors, or cavaliers from Portugal broke a lance with Scandinavian warriors from the further shore of the great northern ocean. Here fluttered many an outland pennon, bearing symbol and blazonry from the banks of the Danube, the wilds of Lithuania, and the mountain strongholds of Hungary. For chivalry was of no clime and of no race, nor was any land so wild that the fame and the name of the prince had not sounded through it from border to border. Great, however, was the excitement through town and district, when it was learned that on the third Wednesday in Advent there would be held a passage at arms in which five knights of England would hold the lists against all comers. The great concourse of noblemen and famous soldiers, the national character of the contest, and the fact that this was the last trial of arms before what promised to be an arduous and bloody war, all united to make the event one of the most notable and brilliant that Bordeaux had ever seen. On the eve of the contest the peasants flocked in from the whole district of the Medoc, and the fields beyond the walls were whitened with the tents of those who could find no warmer lodging. From the distant camp of Dax, too, and from Blaye, Bourges, Libourne, Saint-Emilion, Castillon, Saint-Macer, Cadillac, Rion, and all the cluster of flourishing towns which looked upon Bordeaux as their mother, there thronged an unceasing stream of horsemen and of footmen, all converging upon the great city. By the morning of the day on which the courses were to be run, not less than eighty thousand people had assembled round the lists and along the low grassy ridge which looks down upon the scene of the encounter. It was, as may well be imagined, no easy matter among so many noted cavaliers to choose out five on either side who should have precedence over their fellows. A score of secondary combats had nearly arisen from the rivalries and bad blood created by the selection, and it was only the influence of the prince and the efforts of the older barons which kept the peace among so many eager and fiery soldiers. Not till the day before the courses were the shields finally hung out for the inspection of the ladies and the heralds, so that all men might know the names of the champions, and have the opportunity to prefer any charge against them, should there be stain upon them which should disqualify them from taking part in so noble and honourable a ceremony. Sir Hugh Calverley and Sir Robert Knowles had not yet returned from their raid into the marches of the Navarre, so that the English party were deprived of two of their most famous lances. Yet there remained so many good names that Chandos and Felton, to whom the selection had been referred, had many an earnest consultation, in which every feat of arms and failure or success of each candidate was weighed and balanced against the rival claims of his companions. 
Lord Audley of Cheshire, the hero of Poitiers, and Loring of Hampshire, who was held to be the second lance in the army, were easily fixed upon. Then, of the younger men, Sir Thomas Percy of Northumberland, Sir Thomas Wake of Yorkshire, and Sir William Beauchamp of Gloucestershire, were finally selected to uphold the honour of England. On the other side were the veteran Captal de Buch and the brawny Olivier de Clisson, with the free companion Sir Pertugas d'Albray, the valiant Lord of Moussidon, and Sigismond von Altenstadt of the Teutonic Order. The older soldiers among the English shook their heads as they looked upon the escutcheons of these famous warriors for they were all men who had spent their lives upon the saddle, and bravery and strength can avail little against experience and wisdom of war. "'By my faith, Sir John,' said the prince, as he rode through the winding streets on his way to the list, "'I should have been glad to have splintered a lance to-day. You have seen me hold a spear since I had strength to lift one, and should know best whether I do not merit a place among this honourable company.' "'There is no better seat and no truer lance, sire.' said Chandos, but if I may say so, without fear of offence, it were not fitting that you should join in this debate. And why, Sir John? Because, sire, it is not for you to take part with Gascons against English, or with English against Gascons, seeing that you are lord of both. We are not too well loved by the Gascons now, and it is but the golden link of your princely coronet which holds us together. If that be snapped, I know not what would follow. Snapped, Sir John? cried the prince, with an angry sparkle in his dark eyes. "'What manner of talk is this? You speak as though the allegiance of our people were a thing which might be thrown off or on like a falconed jessel.' "'With a sorry hack one uses whip and spur, sire,' said Chandos. "'But with a horse of blood and spirit a good cavalier is gentle and soothing, coaxing rather than forcing. These folk are strange people, and you must hold their love even as you have it now.' for you will get from their kindness what all the pennons in your army could not bring from them. "'You are over-grave to-day, John,' the prince answered. "'We may keep such questions for our council-chamber. But how now, my brothers of Spain and of Majorca, what think you of this challenge?' "'I look to see some handsome jousting,' said Don Pedro, who rode with the king of Majorca upon the right of the prince, while Chandos was on the left.' "'By St. James of Compostella, but these burghers would bear some taxing. See to the broadcloth and velvet that the rogues bear upon their backs. By my troth, if they were my subjects, they would be glad enough to wear folding and leather ere I had done with them. But mayhap it is best to let the wool grow long ere you clip it.' "'It is our pride,' the prince answered coldly, "'that we rule over freemen and not slaves.' "'Every man to his own humour,' said Pedro carelessly. "'Carajo, there is a sweet face at yonder window. Don Fernando, I pray you mark the house, and to have the maid brought to us at the abbey.' "'Nay, brother, nay!' cried the prince impatiently. "'I have had occasion to tell you more than once that things are not ordered in this way in Aquitaine.' thousand pardons, dear friend,' the Spaniard answered quickly, for a flush of anger had sprung to the dark cheek of the English prince.' "'You make my exile so like a home that I forget that at times I am not in very truth back in Castile. "'Every land hath indeed its ways and manners, but I promise you, Edward, that when you are my guest in Toledo or Madrid, "'you shall not yearn in vain for any commoner's daughter on whom you may deign to cast your eye.' "'Your talk, sire,' said the prince still more coldly, "'is not such as I love to hear from your lips.' 
I have no taste for such amours as you speak of, and I have sworn that my name shall be coupled with that of no woman save ever my dear wife. Ever the mirror of true chivalry, exclaimed Pedro, or James of Majorca, frightened at the stern countenance of their all-powerful protector, plucked hard at the mantle of his brother exile. Have a care, cousin, he whispered, for the sake of the virgin have a care, for you have angered him. Pshaw! I fear not, the other answered in the same low tone. If I miss one stoop I will strike him on the next. Mark me else. Fair cousin, he continued, turning to the prince, these be rare men-at-arms and lusty bowmen. I would be hard indeed to match them. They have journeyed far, sire, but they have never yet found their match. Nor ever will, I doubt not. I feel myself to be back upon my throne when I look at them. But tell me, dear coz, what shall we do next, when we have driven this bastard Henry from the kingdom which he hath filched? We shall then compel the King of Aragon to place our good friend and brother James of Majorca upon his throne. "'Noble and generous prince!' cried the little monarch. "'That done,' said King Pedro, glancing out of the corners of his eyes at the young conqueror, "'we shall unite the forces of England, of Aquitaine, of Spain, and of Majorca. It would be shame to us if we did not do some great deed with such forces ready to our hand.' "'You say truly, brother,' cried the prince, his eyes kindling at the thought. "'Methinks that we could not do anything more pleasing to Our Lady than to drive the heathen moors out of the country.' I am with you, Edward, as true as hilt to blade. But, by St. James, we shall not let these moors mock at us from over the sea. We must take ship and thrust them from Africa. By heaven, yes! cried the prince. And it is the dream of my heart that our English pennons shall wave upon the Mount of Olives, and the lilies and lions float over the holy city. And why not, dear coz? Your bowmen have cleared a path to Paris. Why not to Jerusalem? Once there your arms might rest. Nay, there is more to be done, cried the prince, carried away by the ambitious dream. There is still the city of Constantine to be taken, and war to be waged against the Soldan of Damascus. And beyond him, again, there is tribute to be levied from the Cham of Tartary, and from the kingdom of Cathay. Ha, John, what say you? Can we not go as far eastward as Richard of the Lion Heart? Ha, old Sir John will bide at home, sire, said the rugged soldier. By my soul, as long as I am seneschal of Aquitaine, I will find enough to do in guarding the marches which you have entrusted to me. It would be a blithe day for the King of France when he heard that the seas lay between him and us. By my soul, John, said the prince, I have never known you turn laggard before. The babbling hound, sire, is not always the first at the mort, the old knight answered. Nay, my true heart, I have tried you often not to know, but, by my soul, I have not seen so dense a throng since the day that we brought King John down Cheapside. It was, indeed, an enormous crowd which covered the whole vast plain, from the line of vineyards to the river-bank. From the northern gate the prince and his companions looked down at a dark sea of heads, brightened here and there by the coloured hoods of the women or by the sparkling headpieces of archers and men-at-arms. In the centre of this vast assemblage the lists seemed but a narrow strip of green marked out with banners and streamers, while a gleam of white, with a flutter of pennons at either end, showed where the marquees were pitched, which served as the dressing-rooms of the combatants. A path had been staked off from the city gates to the stands which had been erected for the court and the nobility. Down this, amid the shouts of the enormous multitude, 
the prince cantered with his two attendant kings, his high officers of state, and his long train of lords and ladies, courtiers, counsellors, and soldiers, with toss of plume and flash of jewel, sheen of silk and glint of gold, as rich and gallant a show as heart could wish. The head of the cavalcade had reached the lists ere the rear had come clear of the city gate, for the fairest and the bravest had assembled from all the broad lands which are watered by the Dordogne and the Garonne. Here rode dark-browned cavaliers from the sunny south, fiery soldiers from Gascony, graceful courtiers from Limousin or saint and gallant young Englishmen from beyond the seas. Here, too, were the beautiful brunettes of the Gironde, with eyes which outflashed their jewels, while beside them rode their blonde sisters of England, clear-cut and aquiline, swathed in swansdown and ermine, for the air was biting, for the sun was bright. Slowly the long and glittering train wound into the lists, until every horse had been tethered by the varlets in waiting, and every lord and lady seated in the long stands which stretched, rich in tapestry and velvet and blazoned arms, on either side of the centre of the arena. The holders of the lists occupied the end which was nearest to the city gate. There, in front of their respective pavilions, flew the martlets of Audley, the roses of Loring, the scarlet bars of Wake, the lion of the Percys, and the silver wings of the Beauchamp, each supported by a squire, clad in hanging green stuff to represent so many tritons, and bearing a huge conch-shell in their left hands. Behind the tents the great war-horses, armed at all points, champed and reared, while their masters sat at the doors of their pavilions, with their helmets upon their knees, chatting as to the order of the day's doings. The English archers and men-at-arms had mustered at that end of the lists, but the vast majority of the spectators were in favour of the attacking party, for the English had declined in popularity ever since the bitter dispute as to the disposal of the royal captive after the Battle of Poitiers. Hence the applause was by no means general when the herald-at-arms proclaimed, after a flourish of trumpets, the names and styles of the knights who were prepared for the honour of their country and for the love of their ladies, to hold the field against all who might do them the favour to run a course with them. On the other hand, a deafening burst of cheering greeted the rival herald, who, advancing from the other end of the lists, rolled forth the well-known titles of the five famous warriors who had accepted the defiance. "'Faith, John,' said the prince, "'it sounds as though you were right. Ha! my grace d'Armagnac, it seems that our friends on this side will not grieve if our English champions lose the day.' "'It may be so, sire,' the Gascon nobleman answered. I have little doubt that in Smithfield, or at Windsor, an English crowd would favour their own countrymen." "'By my faith, that's easily seen,' said the Prince, laughing. "'For a few score English archers at yonder end are bellowing as though they would outshout the mighty multitude. I fear that they will have little to shout over this tourney, for my gold vase has small prospect of crossing the water. What are the conditions, John?' "'They are to tilt singly not less than three courses, sire and the victory to rest with that party which shall have won the greater number of courses, each pair continuing till one or the other hath the vantage. He who carries himself best of the victors hath the prize. He who is judged best of the other party hath a jewelled clasp. Shall I order that the nakers sound, sire? The prince nodded, and the trumpets rang out, while the champions rode forth one after the other, each meeting his opponent in the centre of the lists. 
Sir William Beauchamp went down before the practised lance of the Captal de Bouche. Sir Thomas Percy won the vantage over the Lord of Moussidon, and the Lord Audley struck Sir Perdugas d'Albray from the saddle. The burly de Clisson, however, restored the hopes of the attackers by beating to the ground Sir Thomas Wake of Yorkshire. So far there was little to choose betwixt challengers and challenged. "'By James of Santiago!' cried Don Pedro, with a tinge of colour upon his pale cheeks. "'Win who will, this has been a most notable contest.' "'Who comes next for England, John?' asked the prince, in a voice which quivered with excitement. "'Sir Nigel Loring of Hampshire, sire.' "'Ha! He is a man of good courage, and skilled in the use of all weapons.' "'He is indeed, sire, but his eyes, like my own, are the worse for wars. "'Yet he can tilt or play his part at hand-strokes as merrily as ever. "'It was he, sire, who won the golden crown which Queen Philippa, your royal mother, "'gave to be jousted for by all the knights of England after the harrying of Calais. "'I have heard that at Twynham Castle there is a buffet which groans beneath the weight of his prizes. "'I pray that my vars may join them.' said the prince. But here is the cavalier of Germany, and, by my soul, he looks like a man of great valour and hardiness. Let them run their full three courses, for the issue is over-great to hang upon one." As the prince spoke, amid a loud flourish of trumpets and the shouting of the Gascon party, the last of the assailants rode gallantly into the lists. He was a man of great size, clad in black armour, without blazonry or ornament of any kind, for all worldly display was forbidden by the rules of the military brotherhood to which he belonged. No plume or nobloy fluttered from his plain tilting salad, and even his lance was devoid of the customary banderole. A white mantle fluttered behind him, upon the left side of which was marked the broad black cross picked out with silver, which was the well-known badge of the Teutonic order. Mounted upon a horse as large, as black, and as forbidding as himself, he cantered slowly forward, with none of those prancings and gambards with which a cavalier was accustomed to show his command over his charger. Gravely and sternly he inclined his head to the prince, and took his place at the further end of the arena. He had scarce done so before Sir Nigel rode out from the holder's enclosure and, galloping at full speed down the lists, drew his charger up before the prince's stand, with a jerk which threw it back upon its haunches. With white armour, blazoned shield, and plume of ostrich feathers from his helmet, he carried himself in so jaunty and joyous a fashion, with tossing pennon and curvetting charger, that a shout of applause ran the full circle of the arena. With the air of a man who hastes to a joyous festival, he waved his lance in salute, and reining the pouring horse round, without permitting its forefeet to touch the ground, he hastened back to his station. A great hush fell over the huge multitude, as the two last champions faced each other. A double issue seemed to rest upon their contest, for their personal fame was at stake as well as their party's honour. Both were famous warriors, but as their exploits had been performed in widely sundered countries, they had never before been able to cross lances. A course between such men would have been enough in itself to cause the keenest interest, apart from its being the crisis which would decide who should be the victors of the day. For a moment they waited, the German sombre and collected, Sir Nigel quivering in every fibre with eagerness and fiery resolution. Then, amid a long-drawn breath from the spectators, 
the glove fell from the marshal's hand, and the two steel-clad horsemen met like a thunderclap in front of the royal stand. The German, though he reeled for an instant before the thrust of the Englishman, struck his opponent so fairly upon the visor that the lances burst, the plumed helmet flew to pieces, and Sir Nigel galloped on down the lists with his bald head shimmering in the sunshine. A thousand waving scarves and tossing caps announced that the first bout had fallen to the popular party. The Hampshire knight was not a man to be disheartened by a reverse. He spurred back to the pavilion, and was out in a few instants with another helmet. The second course was so equal that the keenest judges could not discern any vantage. Each struck fire from the other's shield, and each endured the jarring shock as though welded to the horse beneath him. In the final bout, however, Sir Nigel struck his opponent with so true an aim that the point of the lance caught between the bars of his visor and tore the front of his helmet out while the German, aiming somewhat low, and half stunned by the shock, had the misfortune to strike his adversary upon the thigh, a breach of the rules of the tilting-yard, by which he not only sacrificed his chances of success, but would also have forfeited his horse and his armour, had the English knight chosen to claim them. A roar of applause from the English soldiers, with an ominous silence from the vast crowd who pressed round the barriers, announced that the balance of victory lay with the holders. Already, the ten champions had assembled in front of the prince to receive the award, when a harsh bugle-call from the other end of the lists drew all eyes to a new and unexpected arrival. End of chapter 23